you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 2? Ruth chapter 2. This morning, we're only going to read the first four verses together. Ruth chapter 2. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless, or the Lord be with you. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we learn these words from Jesus, but this morning they are the offering of our heart. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. On. Father, our desire and goal and passion and mission is that through every song that is sang, your name would be hallowed. Through every word that is spoken, that your name would be hallowed. Through every every syllable of the sermon that your name would be hallowed. Through our prayers that your name would be hallowed. And God, our plea with you as we join with the men, the prayers of the scripture, the prayers of Moses and Elijah, of Jesus and the apostles, we come and we say, oh God, do a work among us that only you are able to do. Speak to us profoundly. Let us encounter you and let us see such a word that your name might be even more hallowed among us that your name might in our community be seen as even greater. Father, answer our prayer because it brings you glory. Father, I pray that people would be saved this morning, that they'd be called out of darkness and into light. I pray, Father, that Christians this morning would be called out of a life of despair or a lack of fulfillment and significance. And instead that, Lord, they would place themselves inside of your story to be able to understand from your perspective what you're doing. Father, I pray that, God, you would bring relief where there needs to be relief, comfort where there needs to be comfort, conviction where there needs to be conviction, and that you would do it in a way that is clearly you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if I'm honest with you this morning, I would say, so I, I became a Christian when I was 14 years old. That would have been 2001. So this is like the 20th year. I am becoming finally a, an adult as a Christian, right? Coming of age. And if I'm honest with you, I would say that my Christian walk is not what I expected it to be when I was a young Christian. That, that following Jesus and walking with God and knowing God has not been exactly like I expected it to be. If I'm honest with you, I think what I expected is I expected to live a life that was more like Indiana Jones for Jesus, right? 
Like I, I thought that I was going to be going from adrenaline rush to adrenaline rush, that I was going to be uh, daily encountering these outrageous miracles where I would go and just tell people about them and I would be able to, to encounter some kind of like physical presence of the living God in my basement every morning and that I was just going to go, man, and I was going to take the world down for Jesus. And I wonder if some of you have had expectations, especially when you were a younger believer, if maybe, maybe you had expectations like that. And as you've grown in the Lord, what you expected was is that if you did the right things and said the right things and gave to your church and attended your church and avoided the wrong places, that your life would be smoother. And that if you, you genuinely prayed to God and sought God, that your life would be filled with what would appear to be greater miracles in your life. But the truth is, is that your life feels very ordinary. Your life feels very plain. I think that was part of what took me by surprise. I think if you were to go back, and it, it would be an interesting exercise, it would be an excruciating exercise, but I think if you were to go back and you were to hear my sermons back, yeah, y'all blow your doors off. Some of y'all that were here, y'all were crazy, okay? I was a youth pastor here when I was 19 years old. I think people were like intoxicated or something when they made that decision. Okay, and if you were to go back and you were to hear sermons when I was 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, I think what you would hear in those sermons is this triumphalism, this, this call to this miraculous, outrageous, outlandish experiences with God because that was my framework and that's what I understood. But as I've grown up, as I've gotten a family and gotten married, as I've gotten knocked off the horse a few times, right? What I've come to realize is that my life is a lot more ordinary than what I expected it to be. It's a lot more plain than I expected it to be. And I think there was a season in my life in which I, I saw the mundaneness, the ordinariness, if you will, of my everyday life. And I wondered if I was actually walking with God, if God was actually a part of my life. And there was a sense, there was a time in which there was a resentment in my spirit because my, my life was so ordinary. I wasn't on the last frontier being the vanguard of foreign mission or even North American mission. No, I was just here in rural. Alabama doing my thing and raising my kids and, and, and living my life. I think what I expected was bigger experiences with God. But I want, you to, I want you to follow me here because I think this is the story of Ruth. I think I was expecting bigger experiences with God because I limited and underestimated exactly how big God actually is. You see, what I've come to realize and what I think is at the forefront of the book of Ruth is that God is so great, that God is so sovereign, God is so big that he doesn't have to always rain bread from heaven or send pillars of fire in the middle of the night. That what God is able to do is he is able to orchestrate by his mighty hand every ordinary event of your life. All of the people that you meet and the places that you go and the things that you do. That God is actually in all of those things. So that through you, his providence unveils and unrolls in a way so that when you get to the end of your life you don't get held as Indiana Jones for Jesus he is hallowed for a God that is as sovereign and as mighty and as wonderful as he is 
And I wonder if there are some of you this morning that you would say that overall your Christian life has been maybe a bit of a disappointment to you. That, that overall what you expected was, were, were more uh, spectacular experiences, more miraculous experiences, but largely what you've experienced seems ordinary and mundane. I think this morning what you're going to begin to see from Ruth and what we're going to unveil over the next few weeks is going to become clearer and clearer that just because life is ordinary, just because life is plain, just because life is, is, is not some spectacle for the world to behold doesn't mean that you're outside of the will of God. In fact, in fact, it may mean that you are perfectly positioned within the will of God. Where we left last week, we left and, and we were really asking, where is God? Where is God? That you have all of this pain and all of this suffering in Naomi's life and all of this pain and all of this suffering in Ruth's life. And it seems as though God, God is gone. And so there's this title for God and this name of God that Naomi uses at the end. And we said that really frames up two questions that all of us have as the people of God as we enter into time of suffering. We looked at Almighty or, or El Shaddai and it, and it highlights the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the might of God. And, and it brings in that question that comes to our minds, is God really able? Is God really able is God really able to handle my life? Is God really orchestrating the events of my life? Is God really in control and sovereign over, over the experiences that I have and the things that I know and the people that I encounter? And we saw the other name was Yahweh, and it's the covenant name of God, and it brings into question the goodness of God. And that's that other question, right? If, if I'm suffering and I'm having hardship the way Naomi and, and Ruth were, is, is God really good? Maybe he's able, but he's not actually good enough to come in and intervene in the midst of my suffering, intervene in the midst of my hardship. And so at the forefront of the end of chapter one are these two questions coalescing with one another to ask, is God really dependable? Is God, is God able? Is God good? Can I rely upon the Lord? And what we're going to see in chapter two is that God answers those two questions with only two words, with only two words. Now here's what I'm going to do. Do you believe that I love you? I love you. Okay. And because I love you, what I decided to do this morning was actually take this morning's sermon and break it in half. Okay, and so if you have your, your sermon list, we're only going to cover the first half this week, and we're going to go back and see the second half next week. And so we're going to look at one of those words that answers the first question, is God able, is God mighty enough? And we're going to come back next week, and we're going to look at that second half. And it's going to be, I'm, I'm really excited about next week, and we're going to see, is God good enough? And so the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that God works through everything that happens. God works through everything that happens. I want you to look at verse three with me because there's a, there's a word that's intended and it doesn't stand out quite as much in the English as it does in the Hebrew, but there's a word in verse three that's intended to, set, to stand out and it's the word that answers that first question that we ask, is God able? And it says, so she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, or yeah, after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. All right, so the word happened there, in, in English, it's just one word. In the Hebrew, it's actually the same word repeated twice. There's a redundancy to it. So it actually says this, chance, chance. And it's meant to kind of stop and, and make you kind of, kind of ponder it for a second because what the author is doing here is, 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 is he or she is giving you kind of a wink and a nod and saying, do you think this is happenstance? 
Do you think this is really, really uh, just all just a matter of circumstance? Do you think this is all just a matter of luck? That really what this is, is this is kind of like an idiom that means as luck would have it. As luck would have it. As luck would have it, this is where I ended up. As luck would have it, this is where I was. As luck would have it, this were the experiences that I've had. Have you ever used an expression like that? It makes me think about Bob Pickard. Bob was a, a, a senior saint here. Rosa, I hope you're watching this. We, we love you so much. Uh, she's a widow at home, not unable to be here right now. But it makes me think about Bob because Bob would never let little things like that go. You would be as a, you know, you'd see Bob out in the hallway and, and you would have small talk with him. And you'd say, well, yeah, as luck would have it. And Bob would say, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no luck. There's no luck. God did it. God did it. And so, so there's, a, there's the author here, and he's interjecting this thought in the middle of this story. And, the, and if you notice, there's very little talk about God in the story of Ruth. There's very little talk. There's all these winks, all these nods, all of these allusions, all of these pointing to very ordinary circumstances. All of, all of, these, all of these highlighting of things that, that seemingly are mundane, these things that are seemingly uh, unsuspecting, but when you put them together and you organize them together, what you're left saying is, no, 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 that didn't just happen. But consider it from Ruth's perspective. Okay, so, so Ruth has been suffering a great deal. Here she is, and she's widowed. She's not only widowed, but her, her mother-in-law is widowed. So she's lost her father-in-law. She's lost her husband. And now she is committed to becoming the primary caregiver for her mother-in-law. All of you that are caregivers here, you know what a commitment that is and what, what, what dedication that requires. And so she has to take the responsibility upon herself. She's destitute. Her mother-in-law is destitute. Her mother-in-law passed a working age. She has to take upon herself the responsibility to go and to be able to provide for them. Well, there's not like she can go and get a job at Honda. I mean, she, she doesn't just go in, find the local temp force and say, hey, put me to work. I want to go and, and find a job. She, it's, a, it's a very complicated process. She's essentially a beggar. She's reduced to charity. Well, God had provided within his law something uh, that for all of the, the farmers, what they were to do is they were to leave the corners of their field unreaped. And then anything that they dropped or they passed over as they were reaping, they were supposed to leave it there. And so what, what sojourners, what foreigners, what, what the destitute, the poor, like Ruth would do, is they were able to go in and they were able to glean. Glean essentially means to, to scavenge. It means to go and just to kind of plunder what's, whatever's left over. But what you have to understand for Ruth, this isn't even a gimme, okay? She, sure, she, God has provided in his law, but how many of y'all have known that God's people are not so famous for always obeying God's law, right? How many of y'all struggle with that, right? And, and so, yeah, there's a provision made for, God's, for, for the poor in God's law, but God's people, especially during the time of judges when everybody's just doing what they see fit in their own eyes, God's people are not famous for upholding their law. And then you factor in the fact that she's a Moabite. So she represents everything that's wrong. She represents to the, to the people of Israel all that is broken in the world, all that is sinful in the world, all that is wicked in the world. She would have been repulsive and detestable to 
the Israelites. You know, we read these stories like in chapter 1 and we hear this Moabite committing her life to Yahweh. And we talk about how God builds his kingdom out of broken blocks. And man, I don't know about y'all, but for me, for me, that ministers to this broken block right here, right? Like for us, that's inspirational. For us, it's powerful. It's, it's hopeful. For Israel, it's repulsive. It's repulsive. She's a Gentile. She's excluded from the promises of God. She is, the, she is the sign. She is the result of an incestuous relationship of their ancestors. There, there is nothing good in her that is redeemable. And yet here she is being elevated. And so I want you to imagine from, from Ruth's perspective what her life would have looked like. Ruth wakes up. And she says, I've, I've got to go somewhere, and I've got to go so, do something. I've got to find some kind of meal. And so she goes to the first field that she comes to. And it happened to be of a good man. It happened to be of a relative. It happened to be in April, May, when the barley harvest was coming in. It happened to be. So from Ruth's perspective, like it is so often in the ordinary experiences of life, you look up and it seems like these things just happened. Except, I heard Sinclair Ferguson, he said it this way this week. He said that the Bible presents life as a split screen. There's our perspective and there's God's perspective. And what we're able to see as we read the book of Ruth and these winks and the nods that we're being given by the narrator is we're able to see that there's a split screen that's happening. That from Ruth's perspective, she's just doing the only thing that she knows how to do. Ruth is just happening into the right places at the right times with the right people. Ruth is just ends up where she ends up. But overall, there is an almighty in hand. There is one who is orchestrating all of these events and all all of these circumstances, through all of the ordinariness of life, through all of the mundane experiences that Ruth has, so that ultimately she ends up perfectly within his providential plan to accomplish what only God has set out to accomplish. In fact, for Ruth, it must have felt like God was silent. She probably prayed and didn't hear anything. She probably wanted a miracle, but no bread fell out of the sky. She just happened into the field of a man named Boaz. See, there's some parallels that we're supposed to draw between our lives and Ruth and Boaz's life that enables us to be able to survive the mundane of life that allows us to be able to, to worship and lift high the name of the Almighty even when our lives feel entirely ordinary and entirely plain, even in the midst of our suffering, even when it feels like all of these things aren't adding together, that we're able to read the book of Ruth and make a parallel with our lives that allows us to lift high the name of the Almighty to say that He he is in control and His will is unfolding through us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So we see this in a few different ways. First of all, we see that God positions her in the right place. He positions her in the right place. Now, th three, uh, two times in the first three verses, it brings up that she is a relative, uh, or that uh, Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, right? Now, that doesn't seem like it's all that important. Again, right there, who was of the 
clan of Elimelech, verse 3. So you see it once in verse 1, again in verse 3, and it's highlighting. So the narrator is really wanting us to understand that there's a connection that's being made here. Now, what's amazing about that, okay, so if you would have understood the social order, okay, there is no government fallback plan for for the poor, right, in in Israel. The plan is the family. The plan is the nation. And so the way that the social order was structured is that you had your immediate family, and then you had your clan, and then you had your tribe, and then you had the nation, right? And the primary caregiving responsibilities in in a situation like Ruth and Naomi found themselves, it would have been the responsibility of the clan. The clan would be like cousins and aunts and uncles. It would have been those that would have been reasonably close to one another, would be able to have a close relationship, but not necessarily sons, daughters, husbands, wives. It would have been an extended family. And the primary caregiver to a a couple of, of barren widows, like what Ruth and Naomi would have been, would have fallen to the clan. Now, What's interesting about this and what's fascinating is you have Ruth now process that this is the first time Ruth has ever been in Bethlehem. She's never been there before. Uh, the, uh, Naomi and her family with Elimelech and her two sons, they go off to Moab and they get married in Moab. So they marry the two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, while in Moab. That means that the whole time they're there, Ruth has never been anywhere else. Moab is all that she's ever known. She's lived in Moab as a little girl. She was raised in a Moabite household. She worshiped at the Moabite temple. She knew everybody in the Mayberry of Moab. Moab, You know what I mean? But she's never been anywhere else. She's not well-traveled. She's not living in some global society where she's jumping on 747s and, and going and checking out what Paris is like. I mean, this is, this is where home is. And so suddenly she gets to a new land and she realizes... I've got to go and find some food, but she doesn't have any connections. She doesn't know anybody. She can't, in other words, Ruth can't ride down Brown Bridge Road and say, hey, that's such and such's farm. That's such and such's farm. Like she's not going down, uh, going down Chocolaca, pointing out all the, the people's houses of the people that she knows when she's showing someone new around town. She has no clue. She doesn't know who Boaz is. She doesn't know whose field is whose. She doesn't know any of this information. And so what it points out is here's a woman who is basically walking blind into town looking for somebody to give her some scraps off of their field and she stumbles into the the field of a relative. She stumbles onto the farm of a man she doesn't know, but a man to whom in the providence of God she is actually connected to. A man who actually bears some responsibility to her within the clan. Not only that, but it's pointed out that he is a worthy man. She stumbles into the field of a man who is a relative, but not just a relative. She stumbles into the field of a man who is a good man, uh, a, a, a provider of sorts, one who has the responsibility to provide, and as a worthy man, one who has within himself the means to provide. And so what we're getting here is that she ends up, she happens into the field of Boaz, but she didn't happen into the field of Boaz. You didn't happen into any of the places that you end up in in your life. None of the places that you're in in your life were by accident. Do you understand that? Do you understand the hope of that? Do you understand the opportunity of that? 
Let's just think about it on a, on a scale of this morning. Not a single one of you are sitting in a red chair in Iron City Baptist Church on top of this beautiful new carpet by accident. None of you are hearing the words that I'm saying right now by accident. None of you are hearing Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 by accident. None of you are singing with all of your heart the holiness and the worthiness of the name of Jesus by accident. Not one of you are bumping into the hallways or ending up in a connection group by accident. None of that just happened. Your life doesn't just happen. No, 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 no. Wherever you are, the Lord is positioning you. The Lord is positioning you. The Lord is placing you. It seems so ordinary, doesn't it? To wake up and to get in your car and to ride and to try not to chew your kids out on the way to church because you're so frustrated. You come through the door and there, and there you are, man. And it feels like you did everything and that you just happen to be here on a, on a wing and a prayer, right? By the skin of your teeth, except, except the providence of God is at work through the ordinariness of your life. Let me, let me give you some experiences that I have. I bet that all of you have experiences like this that you could go back and you could say, that felt weird, that felt ordinary, that felt insignificant, and ultimately it altered the course of my life forever. You have experiences like that? I was thinking about this. This is a pretty funny one. So 13 years ago, Megan and I did something that was... I guess, as ordinary as could be. After church on a Sunday night, we had Sunday night service, and after church on a Sunday night, we ended up at a Zaxby's eating some nibblers. I mean, now, can you think of anything more ordinary than hanging out at a Zaxby's on a Sunday night eating some nibblers? I can't, okay? And it seemed totally inconsequential. We had just gone on staff uh, at the church I served at, at previously, and we didn't know anybody that was there. And it was a big church, and if, if we were a bit overwhelmed. And I was the youth guy and trying to fit all this stuff. And, and Andrew was on staff there, but he and I really had not interacted. And we had uh, kind of bumped into each other a little bit, but that was it. But we, so Megan and I are sitting in Zaxby's eating nibblers, okay, when all of a sudden Andrew walks through the door of, of the same Zaxby's. And we're sitting there, and, and ultimately, you know, what, what do you do? We invite him to come over. He hung, he hovered a little bit, and we, we invited him to come over and to, to eat dinner with us because we didn't want to be rude, right, of course. And, uh, and so he's sitting there, okay, and if I'm lying, I'm dying, y'all. This is your worship pastor, okay, in HD. I don't know what's, okay, let's just tell the story. I, I said, let, let me ask the blessing. And I begin to, to pray, and I'm praying what I feel like is a very good blessing. I mean, I, I felt like it was quite good. And about halfway through my, my blessing, all of a sudden, Andrew shouts from the other side of the door, Bless him, Lord! Amen! Now, I'm praying over nibblers in front of a guy that I don't even know. And this joker starts amening my blessing. And I started laughing so hard that I could hardly compose myself to say amen. And a friendship was born. <laughs> I don't know if that speaks poorly of him or if that speaks more poorly of me. But here we are, and, and this is what brought it full circle with me. 
13 years later, this is 13 years later, and we've spent the last month strategizing on behalf of our church on how we can plant a church on every inhabited continent in the world together. That started over nibblers. Who could have ever imagined what God would do, right? Who could have ever imagined that, that something so silly, maybe even irreverent, God could work through and do such a work that he would bond our hearts together and something that was so plain, so ordinary, so unsuspecting that a friendship would be forged, that over time would develop, that would bring us to be elders in the same congregation so that we would have this vision of God's glory spreading to the nations together with one heartbeat pursuing it. Only God can do stuff like that, y'all. I thought of another story. So uh, I don't know if, I don't think he's actually here, so I'm going to talk about him. Um, so if, if you hung out with me, I, like, I like being active and doing all those kinds of things. And like, I try to be reasonably fit and all of those things. But I'm going to just like pull back the curtain here a little bit. I hate lifting weights. Like, I hate it. Like, I'm not going to be the CrossFitter bragging on Facebook. Like, this is not going to happen. I just hate it. I, I don't like it. Okay, it's, it's not enjoyable for me. If you want weightlifting, like Thomas is an Olympic uh, weightlifter. He's in the back. He can help you out. Thomas, I love you as a brother in Christ. And I, if you want a fellowship in that way, I'm there, but I'm not going to like it. Okay, I'll like spending time with you, but I'm not going to like the, uh, the weightlifting side of things. So, so Andrew and I, at this point, are, you know, this would have been 11, 12 years ago. We decided our church at the time had this gym, right? And so we decided we're gonna we're gonna start working out. We're gonna do it. And so like we have already defied the, the odds of providence at this point that we're waking up early in the morning and we start working out. Well, in there, while we start working out, there's this this dude that is lifting a lot of weight. Now, I mean, I wanna make an old joke here, but like seriously, d- dude was pumping some iron, okay? And over time, we didn't know him. We're just kind of like in his way while he's actually working out and lifting weights and we're kind of playing at it and, you know, drinking water a lot more often than we actually needed water and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and his name was Kenneth. And we got to know Kenneth. Well, we, we decided that one of the things that we wanted to do, and again, it wasn't like we had some great strategy for evangelism and discipleship or, or anything like that. Andrew and I just decided we needed more accountability in our uh, relationship with God. And so we started deciding we were going to have a Bible study before we worked out every morning. And, and so we started having that in my office. And Kenneth asked, he said, man, can I just jump in there with you all on that? Well, after we had done this for months, one day Kenneth stops by my office and he says, I don't know God. I don't know him. I want to know him. And Kenneth came to faith in Jesus. And since then, for more than a decade, Kenneth has invested his life in discipling junior high and senior high boys to follow after Jesus based upon his experiences. It seems so ordinary, doesn't it? It seems so inconsequential And every bit of it had kingdom ramifications. Every bit of it had kingdom ramifications. I could keep telling stories. I could tell about how me and Jonathan, Jonathan was in my youth ministry. He threw a baseball through the window that almost ended my ministry. Um, I I could tell about how Josh and I played football together and God began a relationship all those years. But I, I could tell story after story after story on things that seemed inconsequential and ordinary and mundane. But now looking back over the providence of God, what I'm able to see is that God's hands have been on all of it. 
God is so mighty and so sovereign that he is working through all of these ordinary circumstances to bring us and to position us exactly where we need to be so that we can accomplish exactly what he has set before us to accomplish. And so here's what I want you to believe. Brothers and sisters, what Ruth begs us to ask is why does God have you where he has you right now? We spend so much time thinking about the next thing. We spend so much time wishing and regretting that we are where we are. We spend so much time and energy even asking God and and rebuking God that he would have us where he has us right now. But the question isn't, why am I right or how did I get right here? The question is, is what am I intended to do with it? What does God have set before me right now? Because it's not an accident. It's not an accident. The second thing I want you to see is that he presents her at the right time. God presents her at the right time. There in verse 4, there's another word that's supposed to stand out to us that that doesn't maybe immediately, and it's the word behold. Um, Behold, whenever you see it in the Old Testament especially, and and really in the New too, it means look, look right here, like like, get a load of this. In other words, this is the narrator. When he says, behold, he's wanting us to, he's wanting us to kind of, he's kind of winking at us a little bit and say, hey, hey, you thought that was good? So maybe in your mind, there's still a chance that all of this is just accidental. Maybe in your mind, there's a chance that, that all of this just happened to work out. Watch this. Watch this. And so here, it's already been alluded to a little bit. At the very last verse of chapter 1, it says this, uh, So Naomi and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now what you need to know is Bethlehem is one of the only places in all of Israel where barley can actually be harvested. It's not something that's readily harvested among uh, the, the regions of, of Israel. In fact, that's where Bethlehem gets its name. It's the city of bread or the house of bread because they were so famous for their barley. But there's a window of time, just like there always is in agriculture, in which the barley could be harvested. And so here is Naomi and Ruth, and they've hit a hard time, and they've kind of reached critical mass in their life in hardship and in suffering. And they just happen to go back into Bethlehem within the window in which the barley harvest was taking place, which would have been roughly April to June on our calendars. And so they just happen to get there right at the right time. And so it's all already in our mind that the timing here, there may be something going on. But then when you get to verse 4, so she happened into a field that she didn't expect. She happened into the right time uh, or the right time of the harvest, which is totally unplanned. But then on the very day that she shows up, On the very day that Ruth comes into the field that she didn't know about anything that was happening, here comes Boaz on that very day. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. It just so happened that at the exact right time, in the exact right place, here is Ruth, the Moabite destitute woman, and here is Boaz, the hope that she has. Now, I wonder if you can think back over your life and think about moments like that. Where you think, if I would have been a day earlier, it wouldn't have mattered. If I would have been a day later, I would have missed the opportunity that shaped my life forever. If I would have been a year later, if I would have went to college when I planned to go to college, if I would have gotten the job that I wanted to get, 
If I would have married who I intended to marry, if things would have went according to my timetable, if things would have went according to my schedule, I would have ultimately missed the very mission that makes me me. I would have ultimately missed out on exactly what God was unveiling throughout all of my life. But here's what's ironic about it. Here's what's ironic about it. What did Ruth do? Ruth is doing the only thing that she knew to do. Ruth is just doing the next right thing, isn't she? She's got to find food. She just goes to find food. Ruth is doing all that she knows to do. But what is God doing? God's doing exactly what he planned to do the whole time. Ruth is doing all she knew to do. God is doing exactly what he planned to do. And such is the split screen of life, right? It feels to Ruth like she's just working. Like she's just going to that dead-end job to get the, get the barley. It feels like she's just showing up to go to an assembly line where she's just a number on a page that matters to nobody. It seems like she's just a caregiver that everybody has forgotten. And yet there is the plan of God unfolding before her through the mundane of life, through the hardship of life, through the frustration of life, on that assembly line, through that caregiving. There is the sovereignty of God showing up and shining through. See, for Ruth, it must have felt like the timing of God was all off. Why didn't God show up before her father-in-law died? Why didn't God show up before her husband died? It, it brings into my mind that, that, uh, that uh, story of Jesus when Mary and Martha, they come to Jesus and they're brokenhearted and they had sent for him because Lazarus was sick. And they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, if only you had been here. If you would have just gotten here yesterday, if you would have just gotten here a few hours earlier, surely you could have saved Lazarus' life. And how does Jesus respond? Do you not know who I am? Do you not understand what I'm able to do yet? Do you think it matters whether he has a beat in his chest or not? No, 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 no. I can raise the dead, dear sisters. The, pro- the timing of God to us always seems off. There's never been a time in my life in which God's will was occurring and I thought it was right on time. It always feels too fast, too soon, too slow, too late. Always. Think back over your life. The job that you always wanted, maybe it came too late, maybe it came too soon. Marriage, was it too soon or too late for you? Everything in our life, the timing of God never seems to be on time, except when we look back over the course of our life. They say providence is read like Hebrew. It's best read backwards, in reverse, from right to left. And we look back over the course of our life, and what we're able to recognize is that God was perfectly on time when we felt like his schedule was totally whack. I think back to a young man who was uh, part of my ministry earlier uh, in my ministry, and he was a part of the internship that we were doing. He's a tremendously gifted young man, and he knew that God had called him into the ministry, and he knew that he was supposed to go and, and be able to serve in a church, but, but he would put his name out there, and he would never get a call back, and I kept telling him, man, the time's just not right. You're not, you're not quite ready. Like we, we need to keep going and keep growing, but he, he grew impatient, and I would, I would tell him, no, 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 this is a season of preparation, but he felt like it was a, a season of harvest, and he eventually put himself in a position in which he got a position that was not a good one. He put himself in a position that was unhealthy, even catastrophic and destructive for him. And so when all of it kind of went, went back, he and I began to, 
to decompress and unpack exactly what happened. And here's what he realized. He felt like he had an understanding of God's plan, but he tried to rush God's timing. And when he tried to rush God's timing, it brought catastrophe into his life. You see, God's timing doesn't fit our schedule and it doesn't make sense to our minds and it doesn't fit our plans, but God's timing is better than our timing. God knows you better than you know you. God knows me better than I know me. And God doesn't just know where I'm supposed to be right now. He knows where I'm supposed to be five years from now. He knows where I'm supposed to be 10 years from now. He knows where I'm supposed to be uh, the, uh, 50 years from now. He knows who my family is supposed to be and who I'm supposed to come. And he knows all of the experiences that I have to have so that I'm able to form and become the man that God has called me to do. And so here's what God has called me to do. And here's what God has called you to do. God has not called you to fix the timing. And God has not called for you to create his will. And God has not called for you to accelerate the pace or decelerate the pace. What God has called for you and I to do is God has called us to do the next right thing. The next right thing. God's will is not a code that we have to decipher. It's not, it's not some great mystery that we have to crack. We don't spend all of our lives with a magnifying glass trying to examine and figure out how all the numbers of the Bible align just so perfectly so that we know where to go to college and we know where to go to work and we know who to marry. No, what God says is offer me all of your life, every part of who you are, all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your strength, and then just do the next right thing to my glory in your life. And God will take the next right thing in your your life and he will has a way of stringing them together and weaving them together with a thread of providence so that ultimately you end up in the exact right place at the exact right time doing exactly what God has for you to do no thanks to you it doesn't just happen and I wonder if there are some of you right now that you are in a place of paralysis by analysis and you're waiting for a husband or you're waiting for a family or you're waiting for uh, the, a, a parting in the sky so that you know where to go to college and you're there, but right now you're not doing anything. You're stuck on the treadmill of analysis and God is saying, no, stop. Just do the next right thing. Do what you know to do and you can trust that God's going to do what he's planned to do. Do what you know to do, and you can trust that God is going to do what he's planned to do. That brings us to the final thing I want you to see this morning, that he places her with the right people. He places her with the right people. It says there that Naomi, a relative of her husband's, uh, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. I want you to hold these two words in your mind. So the word worthy there, it can mean a lot of things. Earlier I, meant, I mentioned that it can mean prosperous and it certainly can. But there's two other times that I think are relevant to Ruth specifically in which this word is translated and it's translated in something, to mean something different than material wealth. Uh, okay, so first of all, Judges 6. Does anybody remember what happened in Judges 6? It's Gideon. 
And you remember what the Lord says about Gideon, who is this timid little man? It says that he is a man of valor, mighty man of valor. That word valor is the exact same word that's translated here as, as worthy. And of course, we know that Ruth is set into the generation of the judges. And so it has in its mind some, a man of great character, a, great, a man of integrity, a man of faith, a man that, was, that, that can be depended upon, similar to what we saw with Gideon. The other word time that we see this that's relevant, I think, is in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is about the virtuous woman, right? The virtuous woman. Now, this is really interesting. Okay, so first of all, the word virtuous in Proverbs 31 is the same as the word here in verse 1 that means worthy. So it's, again, talking about someone who is a person of values, a person who is committed to the Lord. But if, you, if we were to have a set of Hebrew, okay, so the way that the Bible, I've talked about this a little bit before, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but the way that we have the organization of the books of the Bible, that, that's not inerrant, okay? Like, that's not inspired. That's just a way that we've organized the Bible. And the way the English Bible follows, the English Bible follows the order of, a, of the Septuagint. You remember I talked about the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible. So it's all the Hebrew, but written in Greek so that it could be read like in Jesus' time, which was uh, the, the international trade language at the time. And so we really follow that Greek Septuagint order. But if you were to have an original copy of the Hebrew scrolls and the way that they would have been organized, do you know where Ruth would have fallen? Right after the book of Proverbs. So think about this. This is, this is startling. These are the beautiful things that I, that we miss that I just, I just get so jazzed about and nerd out over. The Proverbs 31 woman then is presented not as a Hebrew woman, not as Sarah, not as Rebecca, not, 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 not as any of those, but as a Moabite woman named Ruth. You turn immediately from Proverbs chapter 31 to Ruth chapter one. But what I think we see in Boaz is that this idea of a virtuous woman isn't exclusive only to women. That there's a such thing as a Proverbs 31 man the kind of man that does and provides for his family, the kind of man that lives according to virtue and value, the kind of man that toils through the night so that others who are less able are provided for, one who is, who is make sure that all of the poor have plenty. And it's a man like Boaz who is worthy. Now, Ruth says that she tells Naomi when she's leaving, what I'm going to go find is I'm going to go have to try to find me a man who will show me grace. Because I understand that that most people are going to be repulsed by me. I understand that most people are going to be dismissed by me. So in other words, what Ruth needs is a worthy man. What Ruth needs is a virtuous man. What Ruth needs is a man who will provide. And what Ruth happens to find a worthy man, a virtuous man, a man of valor and integrity, a man of means and kindness. She finds exactly what she had to find, and she finds it on the first try by stumbling into a field that she didn't know and meeting a relative that she had no idea about. In other words, she met the exact right person at the exact right place in the exact right timing. See, what Ruth was dependent upon is Ruth was dependent upon finding a man who would actually keep the law of God. 
She was dependent upon finding a godly man in a godless generation. She was dependent upon finding one who delighted in the law of the Lord. In the midst of a generation that was doing what was right in their own eyes, she was dependent on finding the one man in whose eyes she could find favor. And the Lord's providence had it so that she was able to navigate, not by chance, not by luck, not by happenstance, but according to the providence of God, so that she was perfectly placed in the, in the, in the home of the right person. So see, the question that comes up in Ruth, the question that comes up in Ruth is not, am I surrounded by the right people? What happens if she shows up at Boaz's field and Boaz isn't keeping the law of the Lord? What happens if she shows up in Boaz's field and Boaz is not allowing Moabites to glean in his field? What happens if she shows up and he's not a man of virtue? But she can't control any of that. That's not the point. The point is not what kind of person are they The point is, what kind of person am I? Am I going to be the right person when somebody shows up to my field? See, here is two people operating by faith who find each other by no choice of their own. And they're held up and elevated to us as examples as to what it looks like. Ruth leaves and she has to go to provide for her mother-in-law as the primary caregiver. She has to go and she has to find someone with whom she can find favor. And here's Boaz, who's never even heard of Ruth. All he knows is that he loves God. The very first thing out of his mouth is the Lord bless you today. And it's meant to show us that here is a God-centered man in a godless generation. So Ruth and Boaz are set in front of us. And they confront us in our own selfishness. And they confront us in our own godlessness. And they ask us, will you be salt in the midst of a decaying generation? Will you keep the law of God when everyone else has discarded the law of God? Will you be a God-centered man or a God-centered woman in the midst of a godless generation. Because God is at work in all of the ordinary mundane circumstances of your life to weave together so that the men and women of faith might ultimately on the last day and the final judgment be elevated in his kingdom as right now through them his kingdom is coming. So this morning what I've labored to tell you is this. Your life is not just happening. Your life is not just happening. You're so stressed. You're so worried about finding significance. It feels like if you change another diaper, your head just might explode. You wonder if anybody knows you're there. You wonder if you have any real value. And right there in your house are people that God has placed for such a time as this right there on that assembly line in that dead-end job every day, you stand right beside people that have been placed for such a time as this. You bought a home right beside people that were placed for such a time as this. Not a single one of you are living an accidental life. All of you, through the ordinariness, all of you, through the mundaneness, are being 
enveloped in the providence of God so that at the end of your life, you might lift high and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.